Greetings, everyone. This is a Sound Health radio show where we talk about the crossroads of the environment and our health. With me, Richard Talk to Me Guy, and Sherry Edwards, as we know, is working on the SoundHealthPortal.com, where you can go and do a free campaign. Campaigns are software packages, I'll call them, services, where you can run your vocal print through any one of these, such as fibromyalgia or biodiet or stem cells or corona conflict or neuroplasticity about how the brain works. And I suggest going to the soundhealthportal.com, scrolling down to the bottom, past all of the shiny things that will make you want to do it right now, like the campaign or nano voice or all of that, and scroll right to the bottom, click on videos, look at the list of videos where Sherry is doing a live online webinar with somebody, running them through the Sound Health Portal. And I suggest picking a subject that you're interested in and watching one of those videos. And I say that because you'll see the Sound Health Portal in action, and it'll give you a much better understanding of what the Sound Health Portal is and does and the kind of information that it can provide versus me just endlessly talking about it. And I suggest doing that before you run a campaign because it might change what you want to look at in terms of campaigns of free services that you can use. So I really suggest going to the Sound Health Portal, scrolling down and watching a video demo because it all makes so much more sense after you see it in action. It's amazing to have the Sound Health Portal now instead of lugging around software and all that. Now I just carry around a Go mic, which is a small pocket mic, and plug it into people's computers when they have issues on visiting and running a vocal print right then. It's great! To hear and share replays of this show about 20 to 30 minutes after you hear the outro music, and it's going to be a lot here to want to re-listen to. From studying Amanda Smith, I can say absolutely. We want to know more about all of this. To hear more about this and to find all the show notes and everything that we talk about in the show, you can go to talktomeguy.com, all one word, and scroll down that page. And as I say, about 20 to 30 minutes after the show ends, you'll see the page there with all the show notes that we talked about, and I can even edit stuff later. And also, one of the other things that you can do there is that when you click on the page or you go to the episodes and you click on this episode, down in the lower right-hand corner of the show notes, you will see a place where you can click on a microphone. And if you want to leave me a message, just click on that and either ask a question or make a suggestion for a guest or say, well, what about this? And I'll get that message. And it's very mobile friendly, so you can do it from your phone, a tablet, and or it works really well on computers as well. So you can find all that at talktomeguy.com. With that, Amanda Smith is a teacher of science and spirituality and a metaphysical artist. She's been heavily influenced by many moves throughout her life, both physically across the United States and Europe, and mentally from traditional science to metaphysics and back again. Amanda has a diverse background with degrees in environmental science and soil chemistry, coupled with certifications in healing with earth energy and Reiki. Drawing and painting has always been her favorite pastime for clearing her mind, sparking co-creation of her world, and experiencing spirituality. She has an insatiable appetite for learning earth science from books and from communing with and listening to what the land has to teach. This journey created Amanda's desire to become a teacher and a business mentor 
for Ecological Entrepreneurs through the reunification of science and spirituality. Amanda is now the owner of a property in eastern Kentucky dubbed The Mothership, that she is slowly converting into a regenerative farm nature retreat center. The vision is to teach others how to create their own food and then build their own family farm where they have enough to eat and thrive. Amanda joins us to talk about the reunification of science and spirituality. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. It's really, it's really awesome to be here, and um, I'm very grateful for this opportunity to speak for the Earth. Thank you. I think the Earth is happy to have us talking about all of this. So <laughs> yes, we're already so in the too. vibe. We're already in the groove of the vibe of the Earth going, wow, people are talking about me. Isn't that amazing? I love that. Yeah. What was your – you have a lot of education, a lot of sciencey, booky thinking in a great way. So mm-hmm. what was your journey with degrees in environmental science and soil chemistry – to the quantum realms of working with the vibration and the earth grids. Yeah, that's a that's a lifetime journey, and um, the way that happened is uh, I went to work in in laboratories after I finished my my college education, and got disillusioned with where I was living. Uh, was living in Idaho after I graduated. I had a really great job that I loved. But things were happening that drew me back to California and wanted to be back closer to family again. My sister, who tells me she's listening, hi there, <laughs> she had a baby, and I wanted to be close. I came back because uh, I was going to get to be an aunt, and I didn't think that that was ever going to happen, and decided to go to San Luis Obispo, California, um, because I'd been there for vacations, really loved it there, and I got a lab job there, which I hated. I hated it, and I was disillusioned with what I was doing, and um, it was suggested to me that I, I look at something else to do, so I did, and I became a massage therapist, and that journey took me into the world of of energy. So that's where I discovered Reiki. And then from Reiki, I discovered the earth energy healing that I actually took uh, up in Aptos, um, up in the Santa Cruz area. And I did that. And it just, all these doorways kept opening, taking me further and further down that path. And I just simply followed it. And what happened was I got to experience uh, pure science, from doing the college degrees, and then I got to go in and experience energy and develop my intuition, come to understand the the metaphysical way that things interact with our physical world, and that drew me back into science again only with the two things operating holistically. So that's how I got from... The, the just simply the science part into combining the the spirituality aspect in my life. Mm-hmm. It sounds n- not dissimilar. His, he has a slightly different story, but I remember when I first heard Bruce Lipton lecture years ago on his first book that I can't see the cover of right now, otherwise I'd tell you the title. 
and he's a genetic scientist taught at one of the Ivy League schools. And he went from being excited about how that replicated. And I remember watching it. He was, I was at a lecture when he was actually speaking about it. And he had these PVC pipes and he was showing us the interaction of RNA, DNA and what it looked like with PVC swinging and banging into each other. And it was an amazing demo. And then years later, I've interviewed him about a half a dozen times. He went to the taking everything that he knew and then coming to our what, what, what we agreed upon at, at our last interview was talking about our cells are listening, how everything is a vibration mm-hmm. and yeah. how our cells really, he, he explained in, in a great genetic scientist way, how our cells have receptor sites and they have antenna and they're waiting for a signal. Well, at some point in his journey of all his research and writing books, he realized that they were not only waiting for a hormone signal, but they could receive any kind of signal in a certain way, that they were open receptor sites. And it's that same thing of, I, I imagine I envision you standing in a lab, staring at a microscope, looking at things moving around in that rapid thing we see in the Disney movies where it's like, oh my God, it's an adventure action picture. And it's all on a little tiny space and slide. That's true. Now you must think, how could you not think this is a miracle? How could you not think that and have that moment of like, my God, what am I looking at? This entire little world on a slide that's the size of a dime. And somehow we think that there isn't a connection and, and just everything that you're now I know about. Just yeah. taking your scientific background and going, wait, look at the soil. The soil is a true miracle. Look at this, it really how it works is. and happens. Yeah. I actually so that, happen to be wearing my sweatshirt that says science is magic that's real on it today just for this interview. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> I would so wear that shirt. That would be great because <laughs> it is really true. And, it is you, true. and you're calling from, I won't call this your experiment because this is really a, a life. You're now calling us from the mothership. I please, am. Please talk about the mothership. And I'm so jealous. I watched the video that you have this great video on Instagram, which I will post in the show notes, where you're standing and looking at the stream that is now flowing. Yes. And you too, having been from California, it's like, wow, look, water's just flowing loosely. It happened. It fell from the earth. And it's like, because so, California is so dry now, so droughty. And here you are just ecstatic by, look, the river is flowing, and it's vital. So please do talk about the mothership. So the mothership uh, has been my dream for 20 to 30 years. Uh, I knew that I needed some land, and I knew that I, I needed to learn how to receive from the land. And the mothership, I call it that because I see it as sort of a flagship for how to live and how to treat uh, your land and turn it into an ecosystem that supports food. So uh, the way that we farm right now actually causes desertification. You know, our standard practices for farming, it causes desertification. So as soon as you plow the earth and you clear it to prepare it, as they say, for growing food on it, you've basically killed everything that you needed to support your food. So you've, you've turned it over, you've lost uh, moisture, uh, there's no microscopic water, you've killed all the nematodes, you have dried out the bacteria and the protozoa that the plant needs, and that is just, that's just not the way to receive from the earth. So the mothership 
at the core is about teaching people how to be connected with the land, listen to the land, learn what she has to teach you, and then ask the land how it gets to be enhanced, you know, how it gets to uh, provide. So not to take from it, but to receive from it. So that's, that's what I see as the core change, the shift that should happen that the mothership wants to teach. And um, the reason she is the mothership is because I would love to see people come here, learn how to treat the land with respect, connect with it spiritually, learn how to enhance what they have instead of trying to change it into something that it's not, and then connect up together and network together to create uh, a network of food and resources so that everybody gets to have what they want. We don't have to ship things from far, far away if we don't want to. Uh, you know, I'm the kind of person who still wants my coffee and chocolate, so I'm not opposed, of course, <laughs> to global trade. However, I think that it is much better and we will live better lives and receive more if we actually um, create these local food hubs and then then we fill in all of these pockets of, of where there is no food. And, and it doesn't become an issue if there were to be a breakdown in transportation. And especially now with the rising cost of everything, it would make food cost less. And I feel like food is a, is a thing that should be free. I feel like human beings get to live free on the land just like all the other animals do. We shouldn't be buying back our right to life. So we get to claim our land and claim our food sovereignty and, and then share it with each other, and we get to be stronger together. And I feel like all these little satellite farms are out there, and the mothership is just simply the mothership. She's the, the, the original, at least for me. Mm -hmm. I know there are other people doing this, which I'm really yeah. grateful for. Yeah. And I, I have to ask... I have so many thoughts in there. I'm trying to get them into a one place, but I really have to ask, what is microscopic water? What does that mean? What does that indicate? What is that? What is that? Okay, so what that is, uh, you may think your soil is dry, but it's not. So there's water trapped in inside the the. Um, most of it is clay minerals. If you have more of a sandy soil, then you don't get as much. But you might think that your soil is dry, but it's, it's not. So soil is meant to be 50% pore space and 50% minerals. So inside the pore space should be air and water. So right now, a lot of our soil has been compacted by the use of heavy equipment and uh, it's lost its pore space. That's what you call an unstructured soil. So in the world of soil science, a structured soil has pore space. An unstructured soil does not. So inside that 50% of pore space, again, you've got your air and water. And when you allow the life in the soil to proliferate, which means don't plow it, don't till it. Um, when I put mine in, I will be doing the least disturbance possible. Um, and I have a clay soil here in Kentucky. It's very clay, which means I have a lot of pore space. So you get that to open up by enhancing the life in the ground. The bacteria will get the ball rolling on that by uh, moving around through the soil, and it 
bacteria emit all this gooey stuff that then drags little soil particles behind it, it opens up pore space and leaves room for, I call it microscopic water. I don't know if anybody else is calling that, but that's what I call it because I know it's there even when you pick up a handful of soil and you think there's no water in it, but there is. There's moisture. And the more structured your soil is, the more it can hold all the time. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Yes. I can still, I still can pull up in my mind, uh, I grew up on the Monterey Peninsula, and I grew up with migrant workers uh, working artichoke fields, literally in the front yard. Mm -hmm. And as a child, we would go out and play um, with the kids. And I can still remember the smell of that soil when I would pick it up and smell it. Because it was rich, it was vital, it was chocolatey brown, it mm-hmm. kind of stuck together. Uh, you know, if you, it was, it was kind of clay because we lived next to a creek, which eventually flooded that very same property, which is probably what it was supposed to do. But it was just beautiful, rich, vital soil. And then years later, then living in Sonoma County. I pick up the soil and it's like dry and desiccated and like, help me. It, yeah. still, it still has a vitality to it because the soil and the earth have a relationship that's always going to be vital in some way. But it's definitely going like, help me, like a space alien in a movie that's like way out there going, I can do this, but I need some help. <laughs> and will you grow particular crops because you have clay-y soil or will you be able to grow whatever you want? Well, the beauty of it is with a clay soil, you do have more options. So mm. what that means with the clay soil is I have more of the micronutrients that a plant needs because clay can uh, hold on to uh, other types of minerals like, uh, you know, the potassium, magnesium, boron, uh, the things that plants need, and um, there's more of it because they have all of these positive negative zones on a clay mineral that allows for exchange, what we in the soil science world call cation exchange capacity. Mm -hmm. I have more of that with a clay soil. Now, not everybody likes it, but I'm used to it. And I actually, I really love it. I've, I've, I've been growing in clay for several years and you just have to know how to treat it. So and again, with if you have more sand, you just have to know how to treat it. So everything is there and available if you allow the soil food web to actually do its job. If you destroy the soil food web through compaction or plowing or pesticides, then you don't have you don't have what you need to actually grow a plant. So it'd be like trying to grow something in water without adding nutrients. The soil can end up an empty vessel as well. So if you don't have the soil food web in place, it cooperates with the plant, brings micronutrients to the plant, and then the plant is healthy and tastes really good. And can we... I have so many bad words. Um, Can we chemicalize our way back to having healthy soil? No. I mean, okay. <laughs> no, and I can, I, can, I can add on that if you want, but the short answer is no. <laughs> no, please add on to that. Yeah, okay, to that. so what happens is you've heard of succession, right? Mm-hmm. So when you use chemicals, 
if, especially if it's pesticides, herbicides, those kill everything. So we use them to kill pests. But pests are the first responders. So when, a, when you have a dead soil, the first responder is going to be weeds. And that's the thing that people don't want to have growing. And they, they don't look at them the way I do, which is, oh, you have weeds. That's awesome. That means you have a lot of great bacteria. We have some place to start. If you have bare ground, you have nothing. There's no life. The soil is dead. A bare soil is a dead soil. So if we use chemicals, then we, we kill the soil food web. So the, the plant uh, receives nitrogen from the bacteria and protozoa and then micronutrients from the fungal network. So that's, that's the, without going into the, really the long story on that, that's, that's what the, the soil food web is there for. And if there's no bacteria and no protozoa and no fungal network, then receiving nutrients into the plant is impossible. They just don't have anything to work with. And this is why people end up going, okay, well, now I've used all these pesticides, herbicides, or I've plowed all this ground. Now I need to add amendments because my plant isn't receiving the nutrients that it needs. Well, it isn't receiving the nutrients that it needs is because we've interrupted the communication between the plant and the soil food web. And then actually adding amendments is is basically, okay, you're going to kill the soil and then put in nutrients into it for the plant, even though the nutrients are there. They're in the minerals in the ground. They're there. There's just no way to access it. So if you if you are constantly knocking the, the, the ground back to the point of uh, succession, the, the beginning point of succession, then you're always working with a near-death situation. And you aren't allowing it to evolve and turn into what the plant needs to actually thrive. And you aren't developing an ecosystem that knows what to do with a single pest. Pests like monocrop, mm-hmm. because they can come in and take over. There's nothing there to stop them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we talked about, I, I know we talked briefly backstage um, last week, and I talked about growing up near the Salinas Valley and watching the, well, being crop dusted with a DDT. That's one story. Yeah. But the other one is the, I never understood until years later. As a kid, I didn't understand why I would be driving through, we'd be driving through Watsonville. And there would be these giant rows of plastic covered earth, just like tubes, like sausages of earth, just mm-hmm. row after row after row, thousands of rows. And then eventually when I, started learning more about the environment, I realized that they were using methyl bromide. And the methyl bromide was just nuking everything in the soil. That's, those are my words. You have much better ways of saying that. But I mean, it's really just <laughs> destroying everything. And my view is now, and I'm happy to be corrected, is that what they had to do is that they, they thought they had to do that because they were producing, planting such, uh, wait, I almost said very bad words, weak, wimpy strawberries that had no vitality of their own. They had no chi of their own because they were Mm -hmm. probably, you know, who knows what, genetically altered to be only, you know, with 12 dots. I don't know. Whatever that creepy stuff is they do. And so they would methyl bromide the soil, and then they would plant the strawberries, and we'd have strawberries. And so my thoughts were, what kind of quality are those strawberries really? They're like poor, sad, little lost strawberries that are in toxic soil. I mean, how can we... How does that happen? How do we think that's smart? That's such an open-ended question. I'm sorry. 
It is, and and uh, however, it's it's about volume. That's what I'm seeing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Is it's about volume and also a lack of understanding that we could be growing a diverse amount of food. We might not always have all the strawberries we want, but we are going to have some strawberries if we grow diversely. So I actually, in the front yard that I used to have when I was in California, I had strawberries growing, and they were doing quite well. And it's because I grew them in the manner in which strawberries are supposed to grow, which is as understory. I planted them under a tree, and then I let other things grow over the top of them, and they loved it. They thrive. And it's, I really think it's, it's the always being able to have enough. So we, we live in this uh, lack of consciousness. So here's where we get to talk about what's happened, how the earth has been co-opted. We've been convinced that, that, that there's lack, that there's not enough, and that's the energy that we're operating in. And if we don't always have access to strawberries, we'll just use that as our metaphor. If we don't always have access to all the strawberries that we want, then we think that things are collapsing. And the economy has been created such that there's no goal, there's no reason for it except an ever upward spiraling creation of resources and money that gets to be spent on the resources without having a goal. There's no goal. There's no end point. There's no reason for the money spending other than for somebody to get rich. And if we were to shift that goal into what if everybody has enough to eat, if the goal is if everybody has enough to eat, then then all of a sudden we create a way for there to be enough. There's a reason, there's a container to hold the action steps. And this is how I see, you know, the the divine masculine feminine energies when they, when they get to work together. If you want to look at combining science and spirituality, when those two get to work together, the feminine creates the container, like how do we get to be? And then the divine masculine comes in and says, okay, how do we actually make that happen? What are the action steps for making that happen? So we, we don't operate that way on the planet right now. So there's this frenzy of creation happening because we think that we're going to run out. And that's what I think has created, you know, what when you ask why did we think that's important, why do we think that it matters, that's what I think mm-hmm. is that everybody is worried that there won't be enough. Yeah, and having grown up near the Salinas Valley and seeing a lot of farming going on, it's very frenetic when it's industrialized. Yeah. Meaning the migrant workers are running as fast as they can at the highest speed that those nasty conveyor machines can go through the crop, picking as fast as they can. There's no sense of, well, having grown up, not my family weren't organic farmers, but I knew farmers in the Carmel Valley who would walk through the field while we were talking. And, you know, he'd touch a tomato and he wouldn't pick it and it was because he felt it and went it's not ready yet there's none of that in the industrial sector it's it's they just want it harvested now and they want it harvested as fast as they can so they can get it into the box as fast as they can and ship it to wherever they're shipping it there is no sense of really a their idea of a goal for a product is does that tomato fit in the slot that the box we built works 
everything's you can't have produce that's imperfect here uh, in Marin County. They have a program. I can't remember what it's called now. It's part of the farmer's market group and they go out to field after the farmers have picked the produce that they want to sell. So it's, they tend to pick produce that's pretty. This is organic farming. And then what this group does is they go and call all the other produce that may not be pretty or left in the field for one reason or another. And they harvest that produce and then they take it and feed 10,000 kids a week in the East Bay taking all that produce and that kind of program where they're actually rather than this industrialized running as fast as you can to harvest, 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 harvest. It's all, it's all just a high speed machine and there is no opportunity to have relationship to the earth. That's right. where I'm moving toward relationship to the earth. Yeah. What a radical idea relationship to the earth. What's that? None of the industrial sector, farmer group companies, monstrosities that I know of. Yeah. I mean, I can think of so many names that I would name. I'll say Driscoll Farms, just because that's a monster strawberry grower in the Sunnyvale Valley. And it's really a factory. If they could figure out how to 3D print that strawberry, they'd be better off because it's as close as what they're growing. Again, that's such an open-ended question. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so is the question about the disconnect? It's a disconnect. We're, move, we're moving yeah. toward being in relationship with the earth with I have so many bad words I want to use behind that in mm-hmm. such a positive way of like, what are we thinking? It's only the planet that we're on. Could we be relating to it? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, the, way I, the way I have observed what I have seen is there's, yes, there's a disconnect. And there's also a lack of responsibility. So there's a lack of responsibility for one's self, that is happening uh, and it has been ongoing for humanity right now people are beginning to talk about that and people are starting to wake up there's a percentage of people that are saying i want to be sovereign and they're asking themselves maybe what does that mean to be sovereign and sovereign uh, you know to be sovereign doesn't mean that you just get to make all of your choices and nobody gets to tell you what to do being sovereign requires responsibility. It requires responsibility to yourself and to others to actually take care of your own needs. So right now what we have is a primary portion of humanity has been convinced that they don't know how to take care of themselves, that somebody else is better qualified to make decisions for where the food comes from, where their energy comes from, where their resources come from, and then we have allowed it. So we have allowed that to happen. You know, there was a time when people lived connected to the land. And, you know, here in the United States, we have a more recent uh, energy of that still present, you know, from the tribal uh, uh, people that were here and thriving, you know, even 250 years ago. So that energy is still here for us to really be in. We could actually be in it if we went outside and asked to be in it and to feel it and to understand it and to absorb it. So being sovereign actually requires people to learn to trust their own judgment, learn to trust their own decision-making process, have a decision-making process, Hmm. and actually be connected to the earth. Connection to the earth will actually help somebody step into sovereignty. So a life 
of sovereignty is not an easy, necessarily, not an easy life. It, it really means, okay, I have to decide that I am going to learn how to take care of myself. I'm not going to let somebody else tell me how to live and then be dependent on it. So I see a lot of this happening that, you know, we, we are from a similar region in California where everybody's moving into the cities and taking over the cities and turning what used to be agricultural land into more city and making it impossible for those places to actually take care of themselves because there isn't earth there to receive resources from anymore. So it has to be shipped in. We can't so, seem to asphalt. We can't seem to asphalt yeah. fast enough. No, we can't. And we can't even use transparent asphalt, so the water would actually pour through. All right, excuse me. And there are things that you could do that you know you yeah. could use hempcrete. Hempcrete is soluble yeah. that way. Yeah. yeah. I want to. I'm going to step sideways for a moment because I have a question from somebody in chat. We have a live chat room. Oh, nice. And. This is actually about, uh, let's see, they're saying I have, uh, they, they live downtown, so not enough land for a farm, but enough to have a small patch of grass. Mm-hmm. What can I put on my lawn without using pesticides or herbicides? Molasses, Epsom salts, etc.? Hmm. Oh, well, actually, I, I can speak on that, but I, would, I actually have more questions around <laughs> what their intentions are. In order to, I wouldn't use, so Epsom salt, let's just go, let's just start with that because Mm -hmm. this is in the realm of amendments, which I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of amendments because, again, it interrupts the conversation that happens between the plant and the soil food web. And I would also ask people to think about what happens when you put salt on something. So <laughs> I definitely use the, the analogy, have you ever put salt on a snail? What happens to a snail when you put salt on it? So salt steals water from the ground. It reacts with the water in the ground and, and, and takes it. So you don't want to use salt on your ground. And, and, and if you live in a, an area where there's snow and ice on the roads and people put salt on on the roads to dissolve it, well, that's, that's how that works. It's stealing the water. So molasses would, uh, would feed bacteria. Uh, you can't hurt the ground by using molasses on it, but you would be feeding bacteria. So let's go with, with this real quick. I'll, I'll just give a, um, a quick rundown of what supports what. So bacteria, if you have mostly bacteria in the ground, it's going to support grass, uh, what people call weeds, and, and uh, some of your annual, um, your annual uh, crops that you might grow. So if you have a little garden, it might support some of those. And then when you start to bring in more of the, of the fungi, then it begins to support perennial grasses and uh, other types of shrubs. And as you move down the line and it becomes more of a fungal network, then you're supporting trees and especially old-growth forest. So I will take an answer from uh, the Elaine Ingham point of view is Mm. it depends. (laughs) The answer (laughs) to that question is it depends. It depends on what you want to grow. It depends on what is there. If If you don't want grass, 
then begin to plant other things. So succession, the plant uh, creates the soil food web succession. So if you have grass, you're going to have more bacteria. If you start to plant flowers in that, it's going to decrease the, the ratio of bacteria to, to fungi. And then if you want to grow food, it will decrease it even more, and, and it will shift that out. So it, it just it depends on what you want to grow. And what I like to tell people who only have a small patch, if they don't want to grow food, grow flowers. And the reason for that is because the bees need something. And the more little of these little flower gardens that we have in the city, the better it's going to support bees in town. And then on the outskirts, the farmers are going to have more bees. I, mean, I don't know if that's very, the answer very, that this person no, no, was looking for, but it is, an, there, it is one way to go. <laughs> I'm very pro-bee. That's a whole other show. Um, I'm very <laughs> pro-bee. Pro-bee and butterfly. And what they're saying here that they are a retired homeowner and they're just looking for – it looks to me from some of the things they're saying in chat, uh, you know, kelp, liquid iodine, I think they're looking to keep the soil healthy – and not well, it sounds like they active. want to make compost tea. So ah, those are mm. ingredients. So things like molasses and kelp, um, those are things that would go into a compost tea. So, you know, you would um, – I don't know if, if, you, if you're familiar with how to make compost tea, but you, just, you take some compost, you put it in a bag, and you drop it into a large container that is aerated constantly, and then you add ingredients to make the bacteria and the protozoa grow. And among those things are molasses and kelp. Those are compost tea ingredients. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I like it. I like compost tea. I'm a fan of all of that kind of backyard science. Like, look at this vitality. Look at this amazing backyard. I've been to suburban <laughs> homes where when you go in the backyard and there's not a lawn, there's like a raging vitality. <laughs> yeah. And I love that in a garden. Oh, I see. The, the listener is saying that they love green grass. That's what it is. Mm. He, this is the retired homeowner. And he just is trying to support a healthy lawn. Okay. Because he loves the green grass. So yeah, the kelp, the, I, the, the tea? The tea, is especially for that, would, would definitely help. Mm-hmm. And if if he's having issues, if he or she, if they're having mm-hmm. issues with with weeds coming up, then they would want to adjust their soil life to support more grass and less weeds, so less bacteria, a little more fungi. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's all about I, the way the nitrogen is processed. Mm-hmm. And I have some. I have another question in chat. We have active chat today who is saying that they're living in an inner city apartment living in Nevada, living in the Nevada desert and they'd love to have their own, but they don't have much space. Is there any, they'd love to have organic food grown locally, but feeling a little lost. Is there, are there solutions for indoor gardening? Just even a small patch? What can we do there? Yeah. They could create a, a miniature aquaponics. Ah, yeah, they they could do that. I've seen all kinds of YouTube videos around that sort of thing for people in small living uh, areas, and they they could do a DIY project or they could find something. People sell kits, 
and you do have to put amendments in. You know, you do have to purchase the, I mean, and when I say amendments, it's the, the kind of nutrients that you would find in soil. So you do have to put that into the water, but it, it would always be cycling and, uh, and creating something delicious. Uh, there are companies that make little ones or they can make their own. Mm -hmm. I've seen some amazing rigs for, you know, people take a a four-inch PVC pipe and cut it in half and turn that, you know, put it in like a clothes rack and you have water Mm -hmm. flowing through it. It's not, it seems very complicated at first, but really you're just moving water around. So just think of it that way. Don't get like, oh my God, I have to, no, you're just moving water around. That's all it is. Exactly. And come up with a cover that puts something to hold the plant in place and then it's, you know, growing. You just have to realize that you're really you're really like a deity to those plants because if you don't feed them, they're not going to make it. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but I love that idea. Um, okay, so I, re- I really want to move into talking about the, your energetic codes and the earth connection because I have a feeling okay. that could be a whole show unto itself because with all of your science background, and I mean that in the best of way, you also, at some point, like Bruce Lipton was staring in the microscope, I think, and went, what? There's so much more here. What am I thinking? Let's do this. Yeah. And you talk about the Earth connection and the energetic codes and how we can support vitality in the matrix of the world, in the quantum okay. field. Okay, awesome. Uh, I think I would like to just state that it, this kind of started for me by taking permaculture design courses. Mm. So the the land connection happened for me in there and i began to look at things in a different way and and as i played with that and worked with my connection to the land and meditated with the land i started to do these activations for the land you know to activate the the land's the earth's actual energy so this energetic field that is emitted by, wrapped around part of the earth on what I think of as all levels, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, um, there are energy codes, just like we have energy codes that we call DNA. There are codes that, as I began the activations, I started to get repeat information, and from that information, I developed my word definition of what I felt coming out of the land, which is ease, grace, cooperation, collaboration, abundance, and sovereignty. And that is what the earth is here to offer us. So right now, there is within the earth's quantum field within or power grid, there things have been turned inside out so that what we are working with is greed, hoarding, and power over others. And Mm. that's the energy that has been injected into the Earth's matrix, the the Earth's quantum field. Um, And actually I view the matrix that we we are in. So the matrix is actually bigger than the the Earth's power grid, the Earth's quantum field. It's bigger than that. It includes... 
belief systems and what what people think of as the different energy realms like just depending on what your belief system is uh, the, you know the angelic realm even as you as you move through the uh, you know where the energy goes when you die where does your energy go even if you go into that you might be still stuck in the matrix so you know as a as a soul as an energy and as we inject that matrix with love then things get to shift and when we actually actively do activations for the earth we facilitate we open that door to the the truth of what the actual reality is which is ease grace cooperation collaboration abundance and sovereignty then that gets enhanced and it becomes easier and easier for humanity to experience it and the systems that we have that are actually operating on greed hoarding and power over others then just can't resonate anymore so it's just like if you have a couple of energy waves and one of them has has a um a higher wavelength than the other that is like extremely higher than the other then they're just going to come together and create a whole mess instead of working together so as we create more of these wavelengths of energy that are based on the actual earth codes of ease grace cooperation collaboration abundance and sovereignty it drowns out the other energy that is here that is operating through greed hoarding and power over others and in doing that we get to shift the reality that's here. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, and what okay. comes in in into mind for me is if you go into nature as a kid I, I we had a family friend who would take us out camping in the Ventana wilderness. And you yeah. haven't lived in where you lived, you know what that is. Yeah. And we would go out for mm, four to six weeks. And this is serious hiking around. I mean, there were there were campgrounds, which meant there were flat areas with stove, with you know rock stoves you could cook food in, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And you would be out in these amazing places, and and as you're laying on the ground, hoping that a rattlesnake doesn't wake up on your feet because it's you're warm. <laughs> That's why they're there because you're warm, right. <laughs> not because of anything else. It's like, oh, you're so warm, I have to lay here. Um, but you'd be staring up and just. Seeing the sky and the cosmos and the relationship, just being in nature, and this goes back to me, for me, to you standing and being just thrilled with your creek flowing. Nature is just so vital, so willing to cooperate with us if we just stop kicking it in the head. Those are my words. Yep. And I just think there's, a, there's an abundance, all the words that you're using, there's an abundance and a, and a desire to have cooperation and collaboration. There, it's there. It's available to us if we just stop beating it senseless. Right. You know, whether chemicals and toxins and trying to spray more on, and you know, that's, that seems to be our trend now is, oh, that didn't work, let's add another chemical. Oh, that didn't work. Let's try some more fertilizer. Let's try, you know, something else. So th- this goes all the way back to when I was doing radio on the Monterey Peninsula, and they were talking about that was back in the days that the Salinas Valley was sucking so hard on the aquifer, and the Salinas Valley is, let's say, 30 miles from the ocean. 
mm-hmm. and yet they were drawing so hard in the aquifer that they were dr- causing saltwater intrusion into the water table. And one of the solutions they came up with for the tomato crops was to gene splice in some mackerel genes, as in fish, into the tomatoes to be more tolerant rather than fix the problem like come up with a way to you don't have to suck so hard on the aquifer. It's that kind of thinking where the nature wants us to, you know, look, it's prolific. Go into nature and look at a wild garden that's turned back to being a wild garden. It's like vital. If it's get moisture, I don't really have a question there other than I'm a big fan of nature and the yeah. idea of being in being with it rather than trying to wrestle it and control it. Yeah, and I actually have something that I can add to that. Please. Even though there's no question, because you're on to <laughs> something here. <laughs> and that is, this is where the ease and grace part comes from. If you look at how nature does things, she doesn't do things the hard way. It's easy. She makes it easy. So if we were to just simply pay attention to how nature does it, then we could adopt these same processes and it could be easy. So I'll give you an example. So water, and as you know from California, um, you're familiar, I'm sure, with the California aqueduct. Mm. So this is a concrete river that has been created to transport water around California for, for drinking uh, purposes, right? Yeah. Yep. So when you concrete in water, you have taken away water's ability to take care of itself. So what water does, and we could actually be doing this with our water, what water does is, you know, it likes to meander. You know, it likes to wind back and forth. And when it does that, it creates a back eddy somewhere that, that uh, makes a vortex, and then when it follows the bank, it'll, it vortexes inward. And when you allow water to do what it's supposed to do, then it knows how to take care of itself. So water will vortex inward, so it, it doesn't vortex out. So like it, it's not like it's flying out. So um, if I get this right, it's centripetal, that's inward, right? So it vortexes Mm -hmm. inward until it reaches the center of the vortex. The energy reaches the center of the vortex. All of the energy has been stored. And in this region, the water, uh, because all of the energy has been stored, it reaches a temperature of four degrees Celsius. And at four degrees Celsius, this is where pests die and beneficials thrive. So it knows how to cleanse itself. It cleanses itself and it creates life with a vortex energy. And when it's vortexing inward like that also, then you don't have, uh, you don't have flooding because the water the water's moving inward to the center of a river, not out. So as soon as you try to quote-unquote control a river, then it's going to flood. Now, as we know, rivers are going to have, like, they're, they're going to come out over their banks anyway. It's what they do. But you don't have all of this flooding that happens in a river that has been controlled, that has been straightened. So as soon as you straighten it, you take away the vortex. The water has not been tumbled into life. It doesn't, it's not structured like it should be and be good for our bodies. And it hasn't been able to disinfect itself. But 
you use that vortex and it's easy. Just let it do what it does, and it's easy. If we mimicked that, then we could have cleaner water than we do. Like that stream water that's going over that piece of cement, I will put this link in the show notes, uh, on Instagram, we were watching that, that water bubble, and I was always fascinated by was a photographer from an early age, and so I photographed a lot of this time in the in the forest, in the Ventana wilderness, and would spend time just watching a creek bubble. And I didn't mm-hmm. realize until I talked to somebody like you that, you know, there's oxygenation happening. It's hitting the rocks yes. and pebbling, and it's breaking apart, and it's causing oxygen, and the fish are down here at the end feeding because there's particulates coming out of there. It's It's a system that is just there. Right. No yahoo and a tractor came in and, like, dug a big trench and put up a cement wall. It's just, look, nature's doing it. The water is drinkable. I love drinking spring water Yeah. out of the, out of the earth and the forest because I still remember that taste. Like I smell that earth from my childhood. I still remember the taste of spring water just coming out of the earth in the middle of the forest. It was mind-blowing. Water, spring water also comes out of the ground at 4 degrees Celsius. Huh. It, it, that's that's what, it, what it likes to do. So when it naturally naturally comes up and out of the ground, it's coming out at four degrees Celsius. So it comes out pure, disinfected, ready to drink. And we don't have to process it and put it in plastic, but that's a separate show. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole other conversation. Really, do we have to keep doing this to all the rare waters? Yeah, that's just an example of nature wisdom, you know. It's it's easy. That's the first code, ease and grace. Give Give them the chance. And how could we see as I, I, I'm I'm jealous when I, I back to your creek. I'm really hung up on this creek footage because I live in California. You now live in Kentucky, where yeah. as you said you were excited, it was like this creek was dry and the cement was the water was going into the thing and it like rained and now this is happening. And here we barely you know, we had an inch and a half of rain over the past three days and we're like partying. Yeah. Uh, great. But you know, so what? It's nothing. We need water. And we need to treat water with respect. Do you think if we, oh, this is esoteric, but I know I can ask you this. Do you think if we were, I'll use the word kinder to water, it would come back? Does that make sense? Well, here's what I think. Um, I think if we decided to take that responsibility for, uh, for, what we have created, then yeah, the water would come back. There are there are a couple of things that I would suggest for making water come back. And the first is to get the coastal forest back in. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the physical thing. I know this is a long-term thing. Um, but having our coastal forests is important because – Trees emit, um, you know, you can smell it when you go to a pine forest. You can smell mm-hmm. this little volatile organic compound that's coming out of the tree. That's, the, that's what you smell. So when a tree transpires water, you know, it draws it up through its body, lets it go through its leaves, the water's going out on a little volatile organic compound. So a cloud cannot form unless it has something to condense on. So a tree mm-hmm. provides a condensation nucleus with this little volatile organic compound. If we had our if we had our trees along the coast again, so where I'm from in California, all of the trees have been taken from 
the coastal hills, and mm-hmm. there's not enough to support, you know, what a cloud needs to form. So if you have all those little VOCs out there in the atmosphere, all of the mist that's coming in from the ocean is going to condense on those, it's going to make a cloud, and it's going to rain. And it will rain down on the trees, and they will continue to emit their little VOCs, and it will move inland, and then it will rain in the, in the Central Valley, in the San Joaquin Valley. Uh, and uh, anybody who is from California and knows anything about the San Joaquin Valley knows it's dead. It's so dead. <laughs> and it's, that's not the natural, yeah. that's yeah. not what is meant to be there. So, so that's the first process. Now, that's a long-term thing. But if you, want, if you want to help it rain, again, in California, you need your old growth forest back. So mm-hmm. in permaculture, they say the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, and the next best time is right now. So yeah. planting a tree right now is vitally important. And the, the other thing that I would say is it's time for us to envision. So I am where I am because I visioned this place into being. Mm-hmm. We need to meditate. We get to connect with nature and visualize the rain coming back. And we also get to visualize people learning how to farm so that it doesn't kill everything. Mm. And the power of meditation is is so amazing. I will suggest to people, uh, if it's okay, Mm -hmm. um, a book (laughs) that's uh, called The Power of Eight. And the author is Lynn McTaggart. And she is a scientist. And she documented all the things that happened through envisioning and meditation and visualizing uh, and then reported all the details in this book. So for those of you out there who can't quite wrap your head around the idea that visualizing can change things, I offer you this book. And then look for people, look for Power of Eight groups, join them. <laughs> if there's one in California that's working on rain, join it and and start visualizing. It's it's something that I offer um, at times inside uh, my groups. Um, I haven't done it recently because I've been really busy with my own transformation here, but that's getting ready to come back. I've seen Lynn McTaggart speak. That's a whole other show, but but yet another show. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because that's a whole, yes, and make it so, number one. I think that's where they got that from Absolutely. Star Trek. Somebody out of meditation came in and went, you know, we can make that so. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I'm stunned to find, uh, I want to ask about this. We're going to go a couple minutes long because I have to ask about, are you doing an up-and-coming quantum creation workshop, online event? Yeah. Yeah, when is I that? am. And tell us where um, to find that and all that kind of information, please. I, so I am, I, I'm, teaching a, I'm teaching a workshop on April 26th. And right now, if you were to go to my Instagram, um, which is at the Activated Earth, you would find it in my, the link in my bio if you wanted to come in and learn uh, about how to create in the quantum. And, and this is everything that I've learned from my process of getting from finding this place in Kentucky, figuring out how I was going to buy it, figuring out how to get here, and all of the money that, like, 
I was leaking all of this money and somehow I always had enough, you know, to get here. And uh, all of the things that I learned from this journey are going to be included in that workshop. So it's, it's on my Instagram profile. And what's your website, and where can they? Is that where they find out more about your your work and who you are? Well, my website, uh, my website is is more of a contact page right now. They can okay. find out more, and it is okay. theactivatedearth.com. And there is a little freebie in there if they sign up for my email list that they can, you know, you can experience. Um, and there's a place in there if you want to know more, you can uh, set up a 20-minute a call with me if you'd like to hear more about what I do. But, yes, there's some explanation in there um, around earth energy. Wonderful. And I, as I say, I'm, I'm putting this in the show notes live in chat, uh, the Instagram link. I suggest going to Amanda's Instagram page and just watching the videos. That's a great, you know, as I say, the, the creek video just brought tears <laughs> to my eyes because, like, rain. I remember what I rain know. is. It's so amazing. <laughs> I had forgotten. <laughs> yeah, it must be stunning for you. That's why you were so exuberant is because you came from California, and there you are on this beautiful property, but it just rained like a thing, like it just rained. Oh, look, it just rained a lot, and the creek is flowing. That's a miracle yeah. for here. Yeah. All right. Uh, That was great. We can do this again. We have so many subjects I want to talk about with you. Bees, butterflies, come on. I know. They all need help. They do. Um, And we can talk more about that. That was great. Thank you so much, Amanda. I knew it was going to be fun, but this was really great. It was fun for me, too. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Everybody else, have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.